WFAE's David Borex has the story. Tariq Bakari and Larkin Eggleston call their podcast R&D in the QC. Eggleston says they hope to reach people who may not pay attention to the council. Eggleston is 35 and a Democrat. Bakari is a 37-year-old Republican. Despite their political differences, they bonded on the campaign trail in part over their beards, says Bakari. The beards themselves are what truly united us in the beginning. They hope to be an example of how to debate productively across the political divide. Episode 58, we talk about today's officer-involved shooting, 9% housing deals, scooters, the new committee structure, and is Popcorn Phipps retiring? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 58 of R&D in the QC. With me, as always... My faithful sidekick, Larkin Eggleston. Larkin, welcome to the show, my friend. We've had a long day. I am your superior, sir, not your uh, not your sidekick. Oh, my sidekick. It's good to have You're you. You're just the tech guy here. Oh, man, I hate you. You're the tech on the talent. Tell me what's going on. What did we do today? What's the episode 58 all about? Well, we started out the morning uh, down in South Charlotte, and at the end of this... Episode, or at the end of this recording we're doing Ooh. right now, we will have Governor Henry McMaster. Is it our first governor? Well, it's not our first, but our first well, like governor that, that knew they were, knew they were on the show? Yeah. I thought about that <laughs> earlier. I was governor. like, well, you you did record uh, Governor Cooper, but I'm not sure he knew he yeah, was he on d- the show. he definitely didn't know he was on the show. But um, So, yes, it's our first governor who was aware that they were being interviewed for R&D in the QC. So uh, we got to chat with Governor McMaster for a few minutes today after he spoke to a transit summit in South Charlotte. Um, had um, representation there from both states to talk about regional transit and the region extending into South Carolina in that regard. So um, we will get to that at the end of the episode, but we had a business meeting tonight, covered a couple of big topics, and then um, had a, a tragic news story that broke this morning around 9 a.m. Um, that we still do not have all the details on yet. So I think you know be, we'll be careful tonight not to speculate, uh, only to relay what we've what we've been told. Um, more information will come out in the so, coming days. So what we but, knew this morning was around 9 a.m. We got word of an officer-involved shooting. We actually got it um, while we were at this uh, at this transit summit in South Charlotte. And as kind of the morning continued on, what became clear was um, a, a gentleman went into the Burger King on Beatty's Ford. Uh, Beatty's Ford Road near Beatty's Interstate Road, 85. Yep. And, um, and had, had a uh, had, had uh, supposedly, from what we've heard, had some kind of conflict that brought him there with a firearm. Um, we got to hear two, we, uh, uh, CMPD released two um, audio files of two 911 calls. So we got to actually hear the 911 calls in what the employee and then a, a customer both reported. Um, but supposedly this, uh, this, this tragic situation kind of unfolded. They were scared. Police were, were called in. One of the officers, when they were in the parking lot, um, perceived a, a, a threat of a magnitude that made her fire her weapon. And the, um, and the individual, the suspect, was transported to um, to uh, the uh, emergency room and uh, and later passed away. So I, I think it, fair enough that that's the facts that we know of right now. And and there were a lot of uh, misinformation, 
um, that was floating around today. A lot of folks are rightly upset, but I think that misinformation has not helped things. No, in, in any instance where an officer discharges their weapon, certainly when there's a loss of life like there was today, I think there are always legitimate tough questions that need to be asked of the officer, of the police chief, of our police force in general. Uh, there's nobody, uh, I don't think, has any issues with holding folks accountable to make sure that they're following policies. And we just don't know all of that yet. Um, but it certainly does a disservice to um, the deceased in this case. It does a disservice to the community. Uh, and it does a disservice to our police department for people um, to knowingly and willingly spread bad information. And, and I think a lot of the people who were likely sharing unsupported stories today probably weren't doing it maliciously. Um, but those things just tend to catch fire. And so, you know, it's, um, thank God for body cams. And, um, I'm sure that Burger King and, and some of the businesses in that area will have camera footage of, of what took place. And, you know, we, we want as much information as possible to analyze whether the decision made was the right decision or not, regardless of whether it was or wasn't. It, it's an unfortunate circumstance. Anytime somebody loses their life, um, early indicators seem to be that, that the gentleman was having a mental health crisis. And so uh, even if it's determined that our police officer made the right decision in discharging their weapon, uh, it still doesn't, it still doesn't mean that it's not a tragic, uh, a tragic circumstance anytime somebody loses their life. And, and we know that mental health continues to be, and will continue to be, uh, a huge problem in, in Charlotte and North Carolina and the entire country and will lead to, uh, circumstances like this. So I've been a champion and, and I know, um, I know a decent amount about this more than I would have otherwise uh, because my wife was involved in this work with the Durham Police Department when she lived in Durham as a mental health counselor. But uh, crisis intervention training is critically important for our police officers. Many of our officers are already CIT trained. Um, I have encouraged and will continue to encourage the chief to get as many folks as possible uh, through that program so that people know how to deal with um, – someone that they encounter that's in crisis. And, uh, this gentleman was, was clearly in crisis and, uh, you know, un unfortunately things ended the way they ended. But, uh, generally speaking, I, I do hope that folks, even who, uh, rightfully want to hold our officers accountable and want the facts and want to know what happened and why it happened. Uh, I hope that they will wait for the facts before they draw judgment and certainly hope that people won't knowingly spread misinformation that just fans the flames of an already uh, really difficult and really um, tenuous situation. Yes. No, agreed. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tragedy for a lot of folks involved. So I think what we've got to do is, um, you know, we, we've learned this lesson. It's, it's, there's a process. The process has to be followed and misinformation and folks coming out there. Um, you know, it, it only hurts the ultimate, and the we, ultimate objective. And we can't snap our fingers and release the, the body cam footage that has to go through. There's new state policies in place in terms exactly. of how that can be released. So that's not something that we're, uh, that we're sitting on or trying to suppress. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, here's something that, didn't get brought up at all. I mean, it, there are multi sides to this that are, are frustrating, that are sad. Um, so many different angles. Where's it? I mean, a 20 year veteran of CMPD had to shoot and kill someone today. 
I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, you know, I, I'm not trying to make light of the family of um, the person who was killed uh, and anything like that. Uh, that's another thing. But I mean, the, the, a 20-year veteran of CMPD had to fire her uh, weapon and uh, that ultimately killed somebody. I mean, that's, you know, that's something too. And, and I, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that, um, we take these, these, these situations sometimes, not everyone, but sometimes it feels like sometimes people try to exploit these things and it ends up hurting so many folks and it ends up hurting the community. So, um, like I said, all around, we need to, we need to be cognizant of the process. We need to let that play out always seek the truth, but also not allow, um, not allow, uh, false information and false narratives to end up hurting more than they help. And the false narratives undermine the people who are rightfully asking, uh, tough questions, trying to hold folks accountable. So, um, you know, if you want to hold our officers to the standard that we all want to hold them to, um, you know, ask, ask the right questions and, and use, Use factual information, not hearsay that's being spread on Facebook. Right. Um, again, you know, modern technology will afford us the opportunity to likely see from multiple angles what happened. Uh, there will still undoubtedly be disagreement about the decision that our officer made today, uh, even with that video information, but it will certainly help dispel some of the misinformation that was being uh, passed around today. But anyway, um, you know, we, I think all feel a great deal of sympathy for that gentleman's family. Um, for anybody that was there and had to witness that, uh, for, for everybody involved. And so it's, uh, it's, it's something none of us take lightly. And, uh, and as always, when, when that stuff happens in our city, it's a tough day, uh, for everybody in our city. So, um, Tonight we had a business meeting with uh, a couple of big ticket items on the agenda. So which uh, which of those do you want to tackle first? Oh man, they were all so much fun. Why don't you tell me? Let's talk about. Sorry for the noise out there. Um, our par- our our uh, colleagues are out there screaming at the top of their lungs in the hallway. As we have very thin walls in these offices. <laughs> Um, there's apparently a party going on cause our meeting ended a little earlier than usual. So everybody's still got some energy, whereas they're usually beat down. And, yeah, it's nine fifty five, man. Um, so why don't we talk about the 9% affordable housing deals first, which got discussed in the housing and neighborhood development committee last week, I believe there are eight of them. And so just a kind of quick bullet point outline, we didn't actually vote on these tonight. They'll be voted on later. I think sometime in April, but um, there are eight proposals that have been brought to us from different developers for affordable projects around the city. In this case, they all ended up being in districts two, three, four, and five. Uh, I, I decried the fact that there were none in my district last week because I would love to see more affordable housing in my district. Um, but they, as they, did I. As, so they ended up in, in those districts. Uh, I think about half of them were in district two. We will approve those at some point in April. They will be sent to the state. And these are very limited, very competitive opportunities for affordable housing to be put on the ground in Charlotte, where the state bears uh, an immense portion of the financial burden. Almost 70%. And um, and we generally only get two or three a year. Uh, Sometimes four. I think last year might have been the only time we got four. I should chime in. I'm your like color commentary man. But- Keep going. Most likely two or three. And 
they will be judged on their merits uh, against each other and against ones from other places in the state. And so there was pushback from our colleague, Councilmember Newton, about the one of those eight that's in District 5. His constituents have been very vocal in their opposition to it. Um, How real can we talk about this right now? How real would you like to scale one to ten? Well, how Dr. real you want to talk about? Dr. It? Harlow pushed back on him and said, "Let's let's cut the the quit veiling this conversation. Let's just call it what it is." Um, you're speaking about one to Councilmember Newton. You're speaking about one project in particular. You don't want it in your district. Just say that. I mean, um, it's been consistent from both him and the 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 constituents that come the, for the last year and a half. Affordable housing is not something they're interested in being a part of. And to be fair, District 5... And to has, be fair, everyone says that when right. it's time for them to get it. District 5 has had um, probably a disproportionate amount in uh, historically. But, again, there's eight projects. Only one of them's in District 5. Um, three or four of them are in District 2. There, there's been no proposals by anybody else to try to remove projects. These 9% deals, as as one of our colleagues very rightly mentioned, they, one, they're hyper-competitive. If you get it, you take it. You try to get as many of these as you can. We've stated we're, 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 this is about number of units. We have a 24,000-unit crisis to deal with. So we got to get it where we can. And this is free money. Nothing's free, but as as free as anything gets in this world, this is free money for for affordable housing deals, and they only go to areas where the land value and the and the area is lower income and cheap enough to do it. It's literally the only place they exist. So, I mean, to me, this is really frustrating. And here's what I said: looking at how we kind of score projects and that's not the exact same way the state does but more or less we're looking at the same type of criteria based on that scoring that we use this project is not going to score particularly high with the state in comparison to the other ones that are being presented you don't know that though you're you're basing, I'm basing that it on our scoring on system. our scoring system that we literally made up this year yeah but it I factors mean, in the things looking. that anyone would factor in when you're deciding when you're weighing the merits of these projects so but I think regardless, if we set a precedent that um, that a certain council member can come in and, and essentially have veto power on the projects in their district, then what if we have a district, a different district two member next year or three years from now, and they say, well, I don't want any in my district. I mean, all of a sudden, we are setting a precedent where uh, there's essentially district representation veto power what if somebody comes into district one and and it's not me anymore and they say well i don't want any affordable in district one i i don't think we want to go down that road uh when these are such limited opportunities now that might be a discussion more worth having when we get into four percent deals because we have people have brought forward to us a lot more deals than we'll be able to fund in the four percent world and so i think then we can start to be far more selective but these 9% deals, anyone who can get awarded one by the state, we should jump on it because of the amount of money the state's putting in. And so Absolutely. I don't think the one that uh, is in question is going to be approved. But if it is, it's it's 80 units. It's a mix of incomes. It's not all it's not all poverty level, low income housing. It's a mix of incomes. And I, I think you made the point, maybe someone else did too, that we have a lot of 
long-term investments going on right now exactly. with Eastland Mall, with Silverline Light Rail. Um, like if you if you're not willing to 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 jump in and be part of the broader problem that we have in this community to solve affordable housing, there, well, you know, what gives you the right to take? millions and millions of dollars that we're dumping and pumping into Eastland Mall, a problem that we largely created over the last decade. Well, I mean, the, the, the percentage of CIP dollars going into East Charlotte compared to that of, of South Charlotte is just astounding. So we're, we're investing. And when we invest in South Charlotte, like on Scaly Bark and the light rail and all that, well, in hindsight, you know, we made we made some pretty bad decisions and didn't lock up affordable housing there. Aren't in effect what we're doing the exact same thing now? Like, what is the argument? I don't understand the argument. Well, the, against the argument this. is looking at where again to use the the oft used Wayne Gretzky analogy. I used the the argument is they're looking at where the puck is now, and so in that in that measurement, the way that the city measures it, again, not the state necessarily, but in the way that we measure it, uh, that particular project in District 5 scores very, very low on access to opportunities and amenities and things like that today. But then there's another metric that says change, and it scored the third highest on the change metric. And so the change metric essentially is is projecting what's happening and what's going to happen in terms of the likelihood that there will be a loss of affordability, that opportunities will increase in that area and prices will increase in that area and we will lose affordability in that area. So again, if we're looking down the road and this project isn't going to be, if it got awarded, which again, I don't think is highly likely, but if it did, it's not going to be built tomorrow. It's going to be built over time. As we continue to make some of these bigger infrastructure investments, like the project at Eastland, like the silver line light rail and things that are going to, um, that are going to continue to increase values in East Charlotte. So uh, 80, 80 units there is not going to somehow stem the tide of progress in East Charlotte, uh, even if it is awarded and it is built. But I, I do think it's a dangerous precedent for us to start turning down theoretical opportunities uh, to get that sort of, that level of investment from the state. And uh, you know, honestly, I think it's unlikely that the council will do that. Yeah. I'll say one final thing on this and it, I, I was concerned as we went over the last couple quarters on this path where we've come up with this locational policy scorecard measurement. I was concerned having, you know, one of the biggest things in kind of in throughout my career has been quantifying via scorecards and doing the this kind of thing. And my fear is that, and it's kind of coming true right now, and hopefully this is just an anomaly, is that people will take these numbers that get churned out and be like, Oh, well that's the answer. You we'd, know be what having, I mean? we'd be having this conversation, whether there was a scorecard or not. Well, yeah, it, it's well today. It felt like someone just took an individual line item in there, which Pam Weidman clearly said, you can't take you one, can't one, look in a vacuum. At one little thing like that. And it, just to try to do a NIMBY approach to affordable housing to justify it. At the end of the day, nobody wants this stuff in their backyard. One, because there's false stigma attached to it that we keep hearing about. And the other, you know, the funny thing is, I bet you in some of these areas, like one, they're going to drop $15 million into the east side in a nice new facility. The rents will probably be higher there and increase property values just due to the nature of what we're talking about. And for the record... There are people that want this stuff in their backyard. Yes. I have two. I want. I have two Noah. In District Six. I, I have want two it. Noah complexes uh, within 
300 yards of my home that have just been there for a long time, one of which has had some slight improvements to it in the last five years, one of which has not. And I would love to see somebody come in and put a little bit of, of love into those projects to, to get them up to a, a higher standard of living, but lock in the affordability there. Because in my neighborhood of Plaza Midwood, we are losing it literally daily. We are losing the affordability that was in that neighborhood when I moved there 10 years ago. Um, so I, I would love to have it in my backyard because I want the people that work at the retail businesses or the restaurants and bars in Plaza Midwood, they shouldn't have to live 15 miles out of town and, and commute in that, every day. That's my point. I, I, I don't buy into the let's drop affordable housing where the real estate is 55 times more expensive just to kind of like socially engineer an outcome. My point is people in all facets of 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 upward mobility and the workforce work all across this city and they need to live in places that are there. We have police officers that are under 80% AMI that live and work in South Charlotte. They need a place to live. That's the kind of deals I'm I'm looking to to try to and a, uh, a absurd procure. amount of our firefighters have to live outside of Charlotte or outside of Mecklenburg County. So I mean I'm teachers much the same. So it's, uh, it was a bit frustrating today. Uh, I think that it will pass. I then think that that project is not one of the ones that will likely be selected because some of the other ones have a lot better leverage, uh, of our dollars. In terms I hope, of the I of hope units. it is selected. I hope they select all of them. Well, that's what not we should be hoping eight. for. So if we're being realistic, um, there are ones that, that to me probably will, will, rise to the top but I, I don't like the idea of setting the precedent that we start cherry picking and this for the record in our metric again not the states but ours was not the lowest scoring of the eight there was right. one that scored lower overall but there was no mention of that one that was in district three and, and councilwoman mayfield certainly didn't say we should pull that one too so uh, you know i don't like the idea of, of cherry picking and uh and i don't think that's a, a path we want to start down um scooters scooters you talk about that you've been uh you've been more engaged in the creation of this dynamic pricing model yeah. and rewarding good behavior uh, while penalizing bad behavior so what uh what pilot are we entering into with what other cities and uh and what's the timeline yeah so there's three cities um and we entered into it with our own local incredible startup company passport in our own backyard to help us build the platform uh, staff's been partnering with them, with the um, with the uh, with the scooter companies and and other cities as well. And really, I think what we've done, and I kind of made this point in my comments, is instead of following the trend of some high tech cities out there that have done this all wrong, banning scooters or making government the customer, we took an approach of balancing safety with innovation and letting innovation thrive. And then letting the free market operate while getting what we want. So number one was um, we made the rider the customer, not government. A lot of these other cities who actually have gotten to this point, they make the government the customer by handing permits and telling which scooter company can have what number of um, of scooters on the street. And then uh, and then two after we put that dynamic cap in place that makes the, the rider the actual customer and allows them to vote with who they select uh, to ride which which scooters, uh, which company scooter, then we put this dynamic fee structure now on the table, which 
again, the, the, the punchline is cities are falling out in a range. Most of them charging the scooter companies a finite dollar amount per scooter per year to operate on the street. And what we did is instead of doing that, we said, how do we create a model where on average, it's going to kind of be in the middle of that ballpark. But when they start doing things, a couple very simple things that are not in, in what we want to incentivize, parking and blocking ADA requirements on ramps, um, uh, things like that, then it goes up by uh, several cents which or it goes I, down I'm by several about cents. Because the, and I don't know how much you hear from your constituents. Obviously, far more of these scooters are in my district, Dr. Harlow's district and Councilwoman Mayfield's district than anywhere else. But uh, I get a lot of feedback about the scooters and the biggest complaints are the bad behaviors that this new pilot, this new system will try to uh, dissuade riders from uh, from participating in. So it, if they are blocking sidewalks, if they are, uh, people are obviously concerned that folks aren't wearing a helmet. But really the thing that I get the most is they're blocking the sidewalk or they're knocked down or they're in the yard or they sit there for a day. Um, people want these things put in the right place. They want them not blocking their access or, or someone uh, in a wheelchair's access or um, – so I think that this works really well because not only will this hopefully benefit riders in terms of they'll be in the right places, they'll be parked where they should be. Um, hopefully it makes it easier for the users, but I think it actually benefits people who will never ride a scooter, maybe even more. Exactly. And so that's to me a happy, a happy balance because folks who say, well, I'm never going to ride these. They're just a, a burden to me. They're just in my way. Uh, we are trying to address those concerns as well. It's not just about the companies or the people who ride them. That's exactly right. And at the end of the day, what, what I really love about this model is that instead of a special department that's government relations inside the scooter company that's looking at how to make us happy or how to minimize risk and, and upsetting the constituents, We've tied it to their bottom line. It's their own internal R&D department that's going to try to get creative about how to prove to us that more people are indeed wearing helmets or they are removing um, scooters from places they shouldn't be or they're placing scooters in areas we'd like them to be of their own accord. And the reason why they're doing that is because it's hitting their margins the more creative solutions they get to come up with, the less they get charged by us and the more they can pass on those benefits to the end customer, the actual rider. So I think that uh, Charlotte is on the cutting edge right now of, uh, of scoot, scooter, scootering rules. And anyone, who, I, I, again, I think the final point is anyone who says, oh, you're expending all this energy on scooters and, and creative market solutions for scooters. To me, this was never about scooters alone. This was about an environment embracing the first wave of new alternative transportation that's occurring that we're going to see much more. And these innovators, today it's scooters, tomorrow it's freaking, I don't know, drone Ubers. Right? Jets, jets and vehicles. The same reason I'm pushing 5G and things like that, they want to come and operate in a Wait, jets and cars are why you're pushing 5G? That's exactly why I'm doing okay. it. Well, at least we've we've cleared that up, why so it's that's so important it. to you. Uh, one thing I will note, because it, it keeps being a question, is how in the world do you 
make people or, or check whether people are wearing helmets. Anybody who's used these apps knows that when you park one of the scooters, you have to take a picture of where you parked it and you can't you go into your gallery and, and grab an old picture and put it in there. It pulls up your camera and you have to take a picture right then, right there. The same could be done for helmets. So someone could, as they, they start the app, as they start their ride, it could say, please snap a picture of yourself uh, wearing a helmet. And whether that's uh, someone manually checking those or whether it's artificial intelligence that's trained to recognize a helmet, um, it would then be able to identify whether the person was or wasn't in the same way that they are going and checking people's parking. But uh, their bottom uh, line is incentivized. I think there's two two big important points on that. One, their bottom line is incentivized to figure out an R&D uh, in model QC. in the QC, a model that that enables them to prove to us that people are wearing helmets in this amount of rides because this amount of rides equates to this amount of savings in the dynamic fee structure. But two... We just came up with the, the the example of the phone AI based picture of the thing. They might say this makes sense to me to to attach, and they're already working on this, a small portable helmet to the actual device where the scooter doesn't move until it's strapped to their head. Or you could have, I mean, that Bird and Lime already provide helmets to people who want them. They could start putting a chip in the helmets that somehow connects to the to the scooter i mean they're far smarter than we are that, so that's as it the relates point to this, we haven't tried to we haven't tried to um to uh kind of designate this is what you need to do we've we've laid out the problem statement and said solve it eric, and you will be rewarded eric has, has jumped in the comments and said no one's going to take a picture of themselves wearing a helmet but uh theoretically the reason that they would do that is because if somebody is being incentivized Tark's getting his helmet right now, his bird helmet. That clearly he's not used. Really, Eric? Really? <laughs> Here you go, buddy. Because you, you I'll st- now wear this helmet for the rest has, of the episode. It still has the plastic on it. You should buckle it. It doesn't work if you don't buckle it. Um, if Bird tells Tark if he takes a selfie of himself wearing that helmet, and every five times he does that, he gets a free ride or he gets 20% off of the current ride or whatever it is, they'll find a way to incentivize people to do it. They're not just going to rely on people being willing to They'll make it worth their while. It's the free so. market, baby. You gotta love it. it. Out. Um, <laughs> he says no one's gonna want a public helmet. Have you ever heard of lice? Uh, but he does think you look great in your helmet, and you probably have lice. So. I have a huge, huge head. No this one is else. like the largest helmet they offered, <laughs> and it's way too small. Yeah. Um, so two news items from this week. Uh, Greg Popcorn Phipps announced on Saturday at the Democratic Party Convention, uh, Mecklenburg County Democratic Party Convention, that he will not seek re-election. Now, what is that? Fall. Is that is that like a, a group? It's, uh, like it's a, the uh, dominant party of this a county. Ho- hobbyist you, group? You know, all the people you work with besides one. <laughs> um, and most of the people on every other floor. Um, so he will not be standing for re-election. You've he, really been spreading this around. He felt a little uncomfortable when you announced it from behind the dais tonight. And made a Bill James reference. <laughs> Um, no, it's, it's big news because everybody has assumed that every member of council is going to be running again. We know councilwoman Mayfield is going to be running for an at large seat. So that'll be five sitting members running for four seats. There's a competitive race going on in her district, but other than that, the campaign trail so far had been pretty quiet. Uh, we haven't really heard from a lot of other folks who've, who've declared they're running. Um, we assumed everybody in the districts was running for reelection. Most had declared, uh, that they were. And so then this was this kind of caught some of us off guard. What's going to be your favorite memory of Greg Fit your time with Greg Phipps? Oh god, there's so many. There's so many. Maybe the song we wrote. Yeah, but that didn't really That's have anything early. to do with him. He wasn't <laughs> yeah, there. True. He was there when we wrote the song. 
No, I think you just sang it to him afterwards. It's hard out here for a Phipps. We got to sing that every single I don't every think single we week. Do. Um, um, I don't know. There's a lot. Popcorn obviously is you know the story behind popcorn. That's that how like, it all that started. Was like first month. That was like first, yeah, first. It might have been the first zoning first meeting. zoning meeting. In fact, um, ooh, these helmets are hot. <laughs> well, it's also hot in here. Kevin uh, says, uh, "Does Tark have a helmet on right now?" Kevin, I'm assuming you've just joined. Uh, you're going <laughs> to need to go the back. Pro- and, welcome to the program. Welcome to the program. <laughs> we just wear helmets now. Um, so, Tark's uh, Tark's psychiatrist has advised that he uh, just kind of permanently have a indeed, helmet on. Indeed, indeed. All right, man. So. Um, so you want to keep it short tonight? I mean, do you have well, anything else to so talk about? Well, so one other thing I wanted to mention, because I think there's been a lot of misinformation, and uh, mm. we know where some of it's come from, mm. but uh, the mayor has changed our structure of committees. And so what she did was she she basically paired seven committees to five to better align with the way that the manager has structured our staff and our departments in the city. Uh, and to align with the priorities that we set as a collective body at our retreat in January as the priorities of the city. Um, she wants to better align the committees with those priorities, with the way the managers already has uh, his team structured. And so the upshot here is that she took community safety, environment, and housing and neighborhood development and merged them into a uh, neighborhood committee. Uh, that will be chaired by Dr. Justin Harlow. Um, and so I think that there was a kind of a graphic that demonstrated what the new structure would be, but was, and was, uh, leaked out on Facebook before anybody had a chance to give it any context. And when you just look at it, it looks like, oh, there's not a community safety committee. There's not an environment committee as if those things suddenly became not priorities for this city or for the, for the council, um, that wasn't the case at all, but without any context, that's the way it looked. And so there's been a lot of outcry that, well, why does the city not care about the environment? Why does the city not care about um, public safety anymore? Uh, and that clearly wasn't the intent. But um, so you've got the Neighborhood Development Committee that encompasses the community safety, environment, and housing, uh, led by Justin Harlow, Vice Chair Braxton Winston. You and I will remain. Uh, nothing changed on the some of the na- some of the people changed, but. Intergovernmental relations will will stay with its same charge. You and I will continue to co-chair that. Uh, budget and effectiveness will continue with Greg Phipps leading Ed Driggs as vice chair. Uh, economic development continues with James Mitchell as chair and Ed Driggs as vice chair. And transportation and planning uh, will be Julie Eisel as chair and Lawana Mayfield moves into that vice you know, chair role. this was a brilliant idea. Who came up with all this? I know you keep saying you did, but I don't, I don't know that that's completely accurate. You're not going to give me credit for this, man. Um, this was my whole point. Uh, this is why I think it's a brilliant idea. When, because I came because up you with think it, you thought of it because <laughs> I came up with it. No, when, when, uh, uh, a couple quarters ago, maybe two, I brought up what I thought the most important thing we could do in this government was, and that was get away from these. I know you hate when I say this. These verticals, verticals, vertical silos, these vertical silos, these fiefdoms. I just got targ bingo. Where staff. <laughs> Where staff Bingo, has their fiefdom, vertical ver- silos. and everyone has a mini city council in their committee that they're the mini mayor of. And what I said is, this stems back all the way to the 80s when it was the run the business model of which that's just nobody can run a business around here because it's not it just clearly didn't work. We need the horizontals where we focus on outcomes, and the manager took that uh, guidance to heart, and he started kind of shifting the way staff 
um, was designed, starting with economic development, moving on, because you can't have a conversation about upward mobility and you just talk about affordable housing or you just talk about workforce development. If, All these yeah. things connect together. You can't talk about People great neighborhoods without how, public safety. Right. You can't talk, talk about... These things are all intertwined. They're all intertwined. And the problem was everyone was dealing with their little part and they thought that was the answer. So this is a move to get towards the horizontal, anti-fiefdom, anti-silo. Well, there and, you go, Logan. And for the folks who had concerns around this new structure... Clearly, anytime there's change, first of all, anytime there's change, that's well established that there's going to be people who are anxious about it. Is Sam Spencer uh, um, being paid by uh, Justin Harlow in any way? That's the second time I've seen him post that. Sam, what's going on, bud? Big fan, big duck. Justin is one of the brightest minds on council. He's a bright dude. But but settle down, Sam. But settle down, Sam. Settle down. And and then, too, obviously, there is a level of pride and, and a feeling of ownership on some of these issues that anytime someone loses what they view as a, a feather in their cap or, you know, a, a strong bullet point on their resume, they're not going to be happy about it. There's so you, a reason I refer to them as fiefdoms. So you can imagine that um, folks who feel like they lost ground in this, in this new sh- reshuffle um, would have a, a bone to pick with it. And um, that's kind of how it played out. So, um, you know, take everything with a grain of salt. When folks say something awful is going down, see if they've got a particular reason to uh, like or dislike it. Yep. And uh, so you, you can't make everybody happy, but I, you know, and here's the other thing. People have kind of at a quick glance said, well, how in the world can you combine the the work of community safety and environment and housing all into one committee? How long will those meetings have to be and and how oh, will they ever get it all done? This well, is the beauty well, of well, here's it the all problem. right here. Well, here's, here's a problem that is hopefully being solved with this. And only time will tell whether this works out the way the mayor hopes for it to. But um, go back through the agendas of most of these committees for the last year and look at how many things on the committee agenda it's are, staff a, talking. are A- for information only, yes. which means that, that the council members are not taking a vote. We're not advancing anything to the full council. We're not making policy decisions. We're simply viewing and questioning a PowerPoint slide. And go through a year's worth of any of those committee agendas and look at how many times the same PowerPoint deck was presented to us three months in a row. So the idea that we can't handle this work, well, what it will do is it will force staff who will now be spending less time having to go through this uh this exercise of representing and representing for no particular reason, it will force them to move things more quickly in front of us to get all of the questions asked and answered quickly and to advance things to the full council and to advance policy recommendations in a way that we have been very slow to do. And the mayor was clear from the day we started this term, she wanted these committees to become more action oriented, to have 30, 60, 90 day plans and goals and move things through them to council quickly. The only that thing, has not happened. Yeah, the only thing I'm concerned about is Justin Harlow. I don't think he's that strong of a leader <laughs> and it really scares me. You're not me. just saying that because he just did him on the Facebook just, live. I just saw Justin join. Too good. Too good. Justin, you should talk to- Justin, uh, you're one of the brightest minds on Sam council. Sam Spencer, who has been- uh, speaking your accolades all day on social media. Once again, audio only listeners are not going to have any idea what we're talking about. And any video listeners who've joined in the last, let's say, 15 minutes, you're going to need to go to subscribe to R&D in the QC podcast to figure out why I'm wearing a helmet. <laughs> or just go back in the video. It doesn't work that way. Videos only go forward. I don't know. 
Um, so that's that was one of the big things this week was uh, a lot of hand wringing over mm. uh, committee structure that was put out there with with no context. It has now been given some context, and again, time will tell. But I, I think it will make for more efficient uh, committee work and committee meetings and we'll stop seeing things on our agenda that say for information only yes we should be action oriented and i think that's the the goal here and uh so do we have anything else this week that we've we've left out i don't i don't get the, the uh, joke lake, that Sam lake wobegon made. i was reading it trying to understand i'm guessing it's a movie reference that's usually your department it is you're supposed to know those things i'm sorry um i'll work on it one last plug, uh, we still have, and yours is coming up tomorrow night, we still have three more meetings of the Immigrant Community Committee. Yeah. Uh, tomorrow night, Tuesday, we'll be at the Harris YMCA. Thursday night, we'll be at the Camino Center. And Saturday morning, we'll be at Our Bridge. Those will be our final three. And then the committee will convene to bring forward some policy recommendations for the council. The meetings have been going very well. We had an enormous turnout at um, in District 3 last week. And uh, I'm expecting to have some big turnouts this week as well. So, what kind of beers you got for it? Uh, at the wine, at, at those places, none. But we can go out and have a beer afterwards. Mm, okay, I'm in. Um, so, anybody who lives in Tarks District, come out and join us at the Harris Y tomorrow night from six to eight p.m. Let's do it. Exciting. Uh, other than that, I'm I'm good. Yeah, me too. Well, we get to now listen uh, to our interview from this morning first voluntary aware first governor who first knew governor who knew that they were on on the show uh was interviewed henry so, mcmaster henry mcmaster south carolina. south carolina governor right now talking uh very smoothly to us about a two-state solution while we also are uh are potentially jockeying for the panthers <laughs> we talk but, about uh, the panthers we talk about the ports the ports and yeah we uh and we talk about transit connecting north and south carolina so mcmaster's a good good guy though and I, I was excited to be able to talk to him this morning great gracious guy to be able to join our lowly several tens of thousands of listeners podcast so uh let's throw it to uh larkin and tark out in the field So we've got Governor McMaster from South Carolina with us. Welcome to the show, sir. Great to be in the Queen City, Charlotte. <laughs> Perfect. Larkin, what do you have there? So we're here at the Ballantyne Hotel. South Charlotte Partners is hosting a transit summit right now. And you came down to speak. And, and uh, I know Tark's got a question for you, but you mentioned the Panthers. One of the things that a lot of the media and, and folks have been wanting, I think, to, to egg us on to make this some sort of adversarial uh, deal with the Panthers having some of their facilities in South Carolina, playing their games in North Carolina. We've really, as a, as a council with the mayor, looked at it as it really is a two-state uh, team and we're a two-state region. What, what do you think about why it's important for North Carolina and South Carolina to be collaborative as opposed to adversarial? Because you get more done by collaborating and cooperating than you do by competing. The competition is good, and there'll always be some, of course. But in, the, in an inst instant like this, collaboration is, is the key. And as, as uh, uh, Mayor Lyle said, this, this will be a – this will cause – more economic growth. There'll be more people coming to the games as a result of this than there were before because it, more people in South Carolina will be attracted to the games because they will see it as more of their, their team, as, as their home team, just like the people in North Carolina do now. So I think it's positive, but I t tell you this too. Uh, there are a lot of great states in the country, but I, I particularly think the Southeast is, is just is the very best place 
to live, work, and raise a family. And if we could add, if we could take the political power and the economic power of two states and put it together, can you imagine how we could out, outrun competitors from, from other places and get a lot of things done here in these two states that we might not be able to do otherwise? I agree. And you mentioned this briefly, but um, I really like the opportunity for Charlotte and South Carolina to be connected via rail. You talked about the possibility of connecting it down to Rock Hill to the new uh, Panthers facility. I think that will really uh, weave our two states together in a way that they probably haven't been I before. I think so. And it'll be, it'll be just one more great example of what is possible when people work together and think outside the box like Dave Tepper does. I mean, he, he, he gives a proof, a, a body to the, the saying that there's, there's no power on a small idea. Well, he doesn't think small. He only thinks big. And when you think big, things happen. So final question. Um, you, you also talked a bit about the port in Charleston. How do we collaborate and coordinate better? Because I was in uh, our port here in Wilmington two weeks ago working on how we can advance that. You guys are dredging. How do we do that two-state collaboration and co- cooperation with our ports, given the fact that's a little more tricky and we're trying to almost, you know, it, we're competitors by nature in, in a way. Well, but they're, they're different sized ports, and every port doesn't have to do the same thing that all the others do. But with, with I-95, uh, particularly with that, uh, hooking up with uh, the CSX going straight to the port, port that, that makes the port of Charleston easily available to North Carolina. It's like having a North Carolina port. That's right. Well, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for speaking to us all today, sir. Hope to see you again soon. Yes, sir.